If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. The transatlantic slave trade expanded greatly in the 18th century, going from a relatively small enterprise to a global business that saw millions of Africans forced onto ships and sold at market in the Americas. I spoke to Nicholas Radburn, a historian of the Atlantic world, to find out more about the merchants across the globe who embroiled themselves in this brutal business and the ruthless techniques they adopted to grow the bottom lines. Who were the traders and men who were the title of your book? So they're essentially the merchants that organised the transatlantic slave trade, especially during the 18th century, which is the period I focus on. Now, some of those individuals are in Britain, in places like Liverpool and Bristol. But I actually look at two other groups as well who are equally important for organising the trade and would have received comparatively less attention from historians. So those are slave trading merchants on the African coast who are selling enslaved people from the interior to the ships, and then slave trading merchants in the Americas who are selling those Africans to colonists once they arrive on the vessels. And I want to come on to how they collaborate with each other later in the conversation. But before then, can you paint us a picture of what slavery was like pre-1700, so pre this expansion in the 18th century? Sure. So Britain has a slave trade that originates all the way back in the 16th century, but it really takes off in the early 17th century. But even during the 17th century, it remains, relative to what will come, quite a small business it's concentrated almost entirely in London. That's where the ships are sent out from, principally by um, companies like the Royal African Company. It's concentrated heavily on the African coast, especially in places like um, modern-day Benin and Ghana. And it's concentrated heavily in the Americas, especially in Barbados and, to a lesser extent, Jamaica. And the size of the business is very small as a result. So Britain's enslaved about 400,000 people before 1700. Okay, and that's that's still an enormous number of people when we remember that each one of those 400,000 is a man, woman, or child who was dragged into this into this terrible business. However, in the 18th century, Britons were enslaved 2.8 million people. Okay, so we see this enormous expansion which will make Britons, by the mid-18th century, the largest slave traders in the Atlantic world. 
and the business expands in Britain. It moves out of London, first to Bristol and then especially to Liverpool, but also to smaller ports like Lancaster up here where I live. It expands in Africa, so the Britain slave trade will encompass pretty much 3,000 miles of coastline and develop all sorts of new markets and expands enormously in the Americas. So a place like Jamaica will emerge as the largest um, slave market for Britons, but also lots of small islands in the Eastern Caribbean, the North American colonies, uh, and lots of foreign colonies such as Cuba um, and the Spanish Americas as well. So we see effectively a transformation of the transatlantic slave trade in the 18th century, and that's driven by Britons. And can you tell us a bit more about that then, how that transformation is driven? It's driven by thousands, and there are thousands. We know there are about 10,000 individuals, and we have the names of these people, who invested the slave trade in Britain. And now that's an underestimate. There's probably, if we had a fuller record of ownership of slave ships, more like 20 or 30,000 individuals. And there's probably an equal number of people in Africa and the Americas who are engaged in the business as well. Uh, And that's only the people who are engaged as, as buyers and sellers of slave on the coast and in the islands. Tens of thousands of individual merchants who were drawn to this business by, effectively, the search for profits. And the reason is the, the slave trade is a very profitable business. It can be, anyway. It's a very risky business because they're dealing in human beings, and human beings fight back, but they also perish. And that increases the risks enormously of the slave trade and makes it incredibly risky, but also potentially very profitable. And so it tends to draw in people who are fortune hunters, people who are from usually sort of lower socioeconomic groups who have capital and are willing to risk it all in this business in order to make something of themselves. And many of them do. They vault up the social ladder incredibly quickly, and this is equally true of people in Africa, in Europe, and the Americas, via slave trading. And the collective actions of these people plunging themselves into this risky business is to drive up the size of the trade as, as more people are, are drawn into it, more people seek these profits. Can you tell us about some of those people who did advance then? Yeah, certainly. So if we focus initially on the story in Britain, one of the things that was very surprising in researching the origins and backgrounds of slave trading merchants is they had a lot in common. They tend to be people who are from the countryside initially. They migrate to these port towns and they do so because they want to be investing in their often meagre stocks of capital of a couple of hundred pounds um, in the slave trade. If we look at um, merchants in Africa, they too tend to be people who were excluded from the slave trade in the 17th century, who were trying to enter it in the 18th and themselves make something of themselves. And, and that's true of the merchants in the Americas too. They tend to be people who are sort of on the make, so to speak. So they're, they're sort of united by their shared social background, even though if you look to them on the surface, given that they're separated by thousands of miles and live in completely different environments, different parts of the Atlantic world, they might appear to be radically different from each other. And that what they also share in common is a view of enslaved people as effectively being commodities and not people. And the result is they the way they, they operate in this business is with an incredible amount of ruthlessness and incredible amount of violence, um, which is quite breathtaking to see come through in the sources. And I want to come back to violence later in the story when we talk about the Middle Passage. But for now, I wanted to circle back to the idea of collaboration and particularly how they form these networks that stretch across so much of the world. How are they building these partnerships? Well, in the case of Britain's partner with Africans, it's via initially via ships visiting African ports and, and, and networks being formed by the agents who work on the ships, i.e. the captains and their officers, who will be purchasing enslaved people from African brokers on the coast. 
And so captains will often visit these ports, you know, after over over several voyages and develop long-standing relationships with the merchants who are there. What then happens is um in particular ports such as Calabar, which is in modern-day Nigeria, the African brokers will learn how to write and learn how to how to um, how to read, and they'll often do so by sending their children to places like Liverpool to be educated and then to come back, and then they correspond with the merchants in in Britain as well. Merchant networks are also cemented with gifts, gifts of goods from Britain, gifts of things like ivory tusks. Um, from Africans, but also enslaved children, which are often given as gifts to the captain um, to be taken back to Britain. Often they'll be made to work in the households of these slave trading merchants. The networks with the American merchants are usually sustained via correspondence, but also by family links, and by those American merchants visiting Britain as well and touring the slave trading ports to, to, to drum up business, to get consignments of slave ships sent to them once they return to the Americas. So the way that I sort of uh, try to conceptualise the slave trade is a, is a, and those networks is a, is a sort of complex, crystalline system. Right, imagine imagine a snowflake or another sort of complex crystal that, that links in all these different people. And the reason why I think of it as crystalline is to, is to show its complexity, but also its fragility, because these networks often collapse when merchants in this risky business go bankrupt or die, and a lot of them do die, especially um, people who are, who are living in the tropics, but then they're reconstructed by new people coming into the business uh, seeking those profits, which I, which I mentioned previously. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. And thinking about that fragility from another perspective then, are there instances of animosity between any traders? Of course. I mean, they're in competition with each other. This is effectively a free market, and it, and it is, a by the standards of its time, a very, very free and open business compared to other trades in the 18th century, which tend to be quite restricted. And, and will often have a monopoly, such as the trade to East India. So even merchants who are residing in Liverpool together, for example, yes, some of them will work in partnership with each other. Some of them will be knitted together by via marriage and family and so forth. 
or shared participation in politics. But ultimately, they're motivated, as I said before, by by profit, and and therefore they're they're in competition with each other. And then in Africa, yes, there is collaboration between um, visiting Britons and African traders, of course, because they're in the business of buying and selling slaves with each other. But that often breaks down, and that can break down on something as minor as negotiations over price, you know, the, the usual the usual negotiations that happen in business. But they also happen when, say, a ship captain kidnaps free Africans from slave trading ports and carries them off, fires on the on the town, or or the African residents fire on the ships that are in the harbour once these tradings break down. There's an entire massacre that happens at Calabar in the 1760s where Britons collaborate with one faction of traders to eliminate, by, through, through basically killing, another faction of traders. So the fact that this is a business that is conducted in the language of 18th century business, which is often very genteel, and in partnership with each other, shouldn't hide the fact that it's also one that often explodes into violence, and underlying which is a lot of animosity between traders. And the African traders are, for example, well aware that the visiting captains would happily enslave them and carry them off if they were useful as business partners. There's no love lost between them, to say the least. Well, let's keep the focus on Africa then, because I'm curious to hear more about how a slave trade would actually work. What was the process of taking an enslaved person from Africa onto a ship? Well, that's that's something that, I, that is fundamental to the expansion of the trade in the 18th century. If Three million, roughly three million people are going to be taken from the African interior and moved onto British ships. Whole networks need to be developed in the interior in order to, to effectively capture those people, to enslave them, almost always by violence. Now, abolitionists looked at that system in the late 18th century and said, well, mostly it's sort of sporadic, low-level violence, such as kidnapping. But actually, the problem with kidnapping is it's it will generate small numbers of captives, but it won't generate those sort of thousands and then millions of, of people who are moved onto the vessels. It needs to be much more systematic and much more sustained. And so if you look at modern-day Ghana, for example, the way that happens is um, states in the interior emerge, which are armed with um, firearms introduced by the slave trade, and they conquer their neighbours, and, and they'll move tens of thousands of prisoners via those wars down to the coast and then onto the ships, usually via a series of roads and markets which are very well established and well maintained. If you look at somewhere like modern-day Nigeria, what was called at the time the Bight of Biafra um, by the slave traders, what you see instead is a diaspora of merchants who moves out into the populous hinterland and tend to acquire people from lots and lots of little villages, often people who have been convicted of purported crimes, often via corrupted legal codes, and then they're collected together at markets where they're sold and then moved to the coast. So this is a these are well-oiled machines that are created to generate the tens of thousands of captives that are annually exported uh, into Britain's slave trade. In terms of the way the trade operates on the coast, in the early 17th century, the trade had been a process of simple barter for the most part. So a ship would arrive, the captain would view some some enslaved people, he would select some, and then there'll be an exchange usually of either one or two types of goods for those people. Uh, a very simplistic process of, of people for goods. Often those will be things like shells or, or um, bracelets, which are the currencies of the coast. What happens in the 18th century is they develop a very sophisticated system for valuing people who are being brought down from the interior and valuing not one or two goods, but 
a panoply of goods that can be sometimes 30, 40 different items that will be exchanged for a single person. And those are agreed upon by both the captains and the and the African brokers on the coast, the prices of those, the standards of those, how many different types of goods should be exchanged for a person and in what ways. And they, and they work at quite a sophisticated way of exchanging goods for people uh, in which this exchange takes place. In terms of the actual acquisition of people though all that describes is the way that these merchants are exchanging things with each other people on one side and and goods on the other the process is is brutal in the extreme so often the captives who have been brought down from the interior there might be in a caravan of 10 20 30 sometimes as many as 100 people will be arrayed before the visiting european slave traders the slave buyers who will pace along and pick out only those they they think are healthy enough to survive the voyage and earn a profit in the Americas. And the way they establish the health of enslaved people is through a a very thorough, invasive, and frankly terrifying inspection of their bodies, Um, inspecting their teeth, their hair, their eyes, their limbs, their fingers to make sure they can work, but also things like their genitals to make sure they don't have venereal disease. And and these inspections can last up, you know, over an hour, usually conducted by a a ship surgeon who comes on the ship. So every one of the slaves will be subjected to this. And then they'll often be wrenched apart from people who they may have lived with, be family with, have marched down to the coast with, to be separated and moved onto the ships which are anchored in the harbours. And there might be as many as a dozen ships waiting to carry the slaves off. So... It's an incredibly violent process, um, uh, which is sort of masked if you only focus on that seemingly neat way that the merchants on the other side have worked out how to price goods, price people, and trade them with relatively little violence between each other. And what would happen to those who were passed over, like who weren't healthy enough to be taken on? Yeah, that's that's a major focus of the book on both sides of the Atlantic, is is what happens to the so-called refused or refuse slaves, as they're called in the in the trade's grim parlance. Now, refuse means literally those who are refused, but also, as in our modern language, rubbish, garbage, you know, things and it's been cast aside. Those people on the African coast, if they're inspected by one captain and they and that captain rejects them, are offered to another captain. Sometimes, multiple times, you know, they're taken out to a ship with another group of, of slaves after being shown to one another ship as captain. And then they might be brought ashore again and then held for a few days, then taken again and again and again. You know, they're constantly trying to extract value from people, uh, even those who are, um, who are very unwell, who are on the verge of death even. And those who remain right at the end, if the Europeans won't purchase them at all, some witnesses say that they're killed. I think that's unlikely. They're likely held on the coast where they work as, as slaves or, or return to the interior. But their fate is, is particularly grim, given that they're subjected to multiple of these inspections, multiple separations from other sl- enslaved people, multiple voyages from shore out to the ships over sometimes terrifying surf, and multiple exposure to the, the sort of terrifying alien world of the, not only the slave ships, but Europeans who appear to the enslaved Africans, especially those from the interior, uh, to be very otherworldly and terrifying because they look so different, dress so differently and speak so differently and, of course, subject them to such horrid violence. And coming back then to those that are taken aboard and are destined to take the Middle Passage to the Americas, you describe these ships as floating dungeons. Can you tell us a bit about why that is? Well, that's a, that's actually a term that um, that Marcus Redeker used in his own book on the, the, the slave ship. 
to, to great effect. And he and he's drawn there on an abolitionist who was actually a sailor on a slave ship who described who who, who coined that term floating dungeons. And the reason is because as Redica describes, uh, the slave ship is a sort of mobile prison. Right, it's a it's a mobile trading platform because often that's where the buying and selling of slaves take place. It's also a warship because it's designed to fight off attackers at sea, but it's also a prison because it's effectively designed to carry hundreds of captives from one side of the Atlantic to the other and prevent them from seizing the ship, from rebelling, from fighting back, which is what they will naturally try and do, and which and, and it, which is something that the slave traders are aware that the, that the slaves will do. Because remember, on these vessels. Uh, if there are 300 captives aboard, there might only be maybe 30 crew. So it's about a 10 to 1 disparity between between captives and crew. And many of those captives, roughly maybe a half, will be, will be adult men, m- many of whom will be prisoners of war who might be warriors. Uh, but enslaved women also fought back as well. So, you know, this, this is a febrile atmosphere on the ship of, of tension where the slaves are constantly trying to rise up and seize the vessel and regain their liberty. So the slave traders are very aware of this. It's one of the key risks of their business. They discuss it all the time in, the, in their letters. They discuss the risk of insurrection, but also the risk that the captors will, will perish on the voyage, and that's something I'm sure we'll, we'll come back to. But if we stick with, with resistance, they effectively design their vessels to make it nearly impossible for the slaves to seize the ship. And they do so by creating this floating floating dungeon that, that other historians have observed. They create a barrier along the, the middle of the vessel on the above decks, over one on one side of which will be the men at the front of the ship, and at the back of which will be the women at the rear of the ship, the so-called barricado. It's a nine-foot-high wooden wall that straddles the ship and separates it in two. The crew will be behind the barricado with the, with the women and children. The men will be in front. And on that barricado will be swivel guns along the top, armed guards with muskets, uh, and only one door through it, which is very hard to pass through because it's very low and is bolted at all times and guarded at all times. Also to the barricado, they often roll cannon through so that if the men slaves rise up, they can light the cannon and immediately clear the deck by firing cannon fire into them. That makes it nearly impossible for the men slaves who are trapped on that side of the barricado if they rise up to capture the entire ship, because in order to capture the ship, they need to get to the back, they need to kill the crew, they need to seize hold of their weaponry, and they need to get control of the of the things like the steering wheel and the rudder and the rigging and all the things that, that enable it to go. In addition, they develop a very um, structured and rigid daily routine for the slaves, in which when they're not up on deck, which is where they'll be during the day, and during daylight hours, they'll be locked below deck, again in segregated rooms. Often in the case of the men's slaves, chained together uh, at the ankle and the wrist, two by two. And they will be sealed down there. There'll be sealed hatches above, which will, be the guard, which will again be guarded throughout the hours of from, from about six at night till about eight in the morning. So they're down in those below-deck prisons for about 16 hours a day. So the result of this is that the overwhelming majority of slave ships which leave the African coast reach the Americas. Uh, without the slaves seizing the ship, which is remarkable when you think about it, given that um, the enslaved people aboard, A, outnumber the crew so heavily, and B, are always seeking to regain their liberty, always looking for that chance to rise up, to capture the ship, to kill the crew, uh, and to try and get themselves back to Africa. And again, to come back to that idea of transformation I talk about in the book, what I show is that those developments, that creation of the floating dungeon is a fundamental 
aspect of enlarging the trade, of making it efficient, making it effective. Because once slave traders have introduced the security apparatus, which is something they do around the turn of the 18th century, it's something that every one of them can copy across their vessels. So a new entrant into the slave trade doesn't need to know how do I design a slave ship? How do I control all these people on board the vessel? They know because it's sort of common knowledge that's been developed um, and, and that makes the uh, the trade a lot easier to get into, a lot easier to access, a lot easier to invest in uh, because they've come up with a, a surefire way of preventing resistance and, and mitigating it, mitigating business risk, if you think of it, in terms of the merchants. And thinking about risk from a different perspective, what are the risks to the health of those on board? Resistance is the is one of the primary risks to the slave traders on the Middle Passage, and mortality is the other. They're, and they often put the two together in in their letters and in their correspondence. Uh, they'll say that the primary risks to the voyage are that the slaves will rise up, but also that they will perish. And those two things are somewhat interlinked for reasons I'll, I'll come into in a second. Effectively, as you can imagine, the slave ships are, given that they have three, four, five, sometimes as many as 600 people on board, are incredibly pestilential. Diseases will spread through the captives on board like wildfire. And the reason is because the slave traders pack them in, the people in, so closely together on these vessels. Looking at the registers of slave ships and the numbers of people on board, I've worked out that each person on board has something like five and a half square feet of space allocated to them. And that means that, especially for the enslaved men who tend to be taller and larger, they're forced onto their side up against their neighbours, crammed up against each other so they can barely move. So you couldn't, you couldn't imagine a, a more effective way for disease to spread through a population of people. And, and it spread it does. Anyone who comes on board with um, dysentery, fevers, any kind of infectious disease, smallpox, measles, etc., will typically introduce it to almost the entire human cargo with disastrous effects for the health of enslaved people. On top of that, the arduousness of marching to the coast, which can sometimes be over 100 miles on foot, carried a heavy load, the violence that enslaved people are subjected to, the depression and effects on mental health that brings, and then just the effects of a enervating voyage across the ocean also take an enormous toll on people. And the result is, especially in the 17th century, something like one in four of the people who are embarked on the vessels will perish at sea and their bodies will be just cast over the side by the crew, usually to be consumed by sharks, which follow the vessel. That's something that, that Marcus Reddick has explored as well. And so what the slave traders do in the 18th century to try and mitigate that, not through humanitarianism, not through concern for the people they're enslaving, but rather for their own bottom lines, their own businesses, is try and introduce a way of modifying their shipping techniques so that the slaves basically spend more time above deck in the fresh air and out of these rooms, as they call them, below deck, these prisons below deck where they're, where they're crammed up against each other. And so they come up with a new way of shipping people across the Atlantic in the late 17th and early 18th century, which is that, as I mentioned before, all of them will be brought above deck around 8 in the morning as soon as the sun comes up. They'll be up there on the top deck, with that barricado in place, with the with the guards there watching them, where they'll eat two of their meals uh, before they're sent below in the evening. And the reason that is a transformation is in the early 17th century, and especially in things like the Iberian slave trades, especially the slave trades of Portugal, slaves were typically held below in the deck in the ships 
for the entirety of the voyage, only brought up perhaps once a day to eat, to wash, to defecate, before they were sent below again. And that would only be in small groups. So this idea of bringing the entire human cargo above deck during the day is a key innovation but it's one and it's one that's driven by this desire to reduce mortality reduce sickness and therefore increase the bottom line increase the profits of the shippers and when the ships would finally arrive in the americas what would happen then well that's something i spent i've spent a lot of time researching the reason is it's an area of the slave trade what happens to the captives when they reach the americas that hasn't been nearly explored enough. There has been some excellent work on this uh, by historians such as Stephanie Smallwood, Swanda Mustakeem, uh, Audrey Dipti and others who have looked at what happens in these slave cells in different parts of the, of the Atlantic world and in different periods. And what I discovered is just like with the transformations that happen in Africa, the creation of those mechanisms by which they can exchange complex bundles of goods for people, the transformations that happen on the ship, that standardization of security apparatus and the daily routine, they create in the late 17th and 18th century a standardized method for selling enslaved people. And it effectively is based around the health of the captives. Okay, so you have to imagine once the ship reaches the Americas, something like one in six of the captives would have perished along the way in a typical voyage in the late 18th century, sometimes higher, sometimes lower. That's just the average. Huge number of people perished on these ships going across the Atlantic. It makes it a sort of giant grave uh, for captives who are cast into the sea. But just because the ship reaches the Americas doesn't mean that that sickness, illness, halts. And what I calculated by looking at an enormous number of um, documents that show sort of invoices of people being sold is that about a fifth of the people coming off the, off the ships remain in ill health. They're the people who might be on the verge of death, from something like dysentery or smallpox, right the way through to people who are who are subject to uh, things like dehydration, which is a major killer of enslaved people on the on the ship, or who have perhaps got sores and gangrene, all sorts of horrible things that afflict people on the vessels. Other people on the ship will be in comparatively better health. That's that's the comparative is key there because everyone coming off the vessel will be enervated by the voyage, scarred by it mentally and physically in some way. But in the eyes of the slave traders, there are people who are considered to be healthy and people who are considered to be very unhealthy. And so they designed these sails and they designed these in the, in the late 17th century, in the, principally in the Caribbean, in such a way that they sell the healthy captives first, the so-called healthy captives first, usually the enslaved men for high prices and they typically sell those to the most affluent colonists, usually sugar planters in the Caribbean, rice planters in places like South Carolina, leaving, after that first phase of the sale, women, children, and the unhealthy to be purchased by people like uh, individuals who dwell in towns who might be looking to buy one or two enslaved people to work as, say, an apprentice in a trade, and then right the way down to um, speculators who buy up the sickly slaves, often in bulk, in the hopes that they'll be able to heal them up and resell them at a profit. So this whole enormous um, sort of secondary slave trade that operates in the Americas is designed to take the sickly captives coming off the ships, try and extract value from them by imprisoning them for long, often long periods, often months, offering them rudimentary medicine and then reselling them either locally or shipping them off to other colonies uh, at, at large profits. And that's the, that's the form that these slave sales take. It was remarkable to see that places as distant as South Carolina will often 
you're using exactly the same sales mechanism for selling people as a place like Barbados, even though they're separated by over a thousand miles throughout the 18th century with very few varieties. And what was also remarkable to see by analyzing these sales and looking at such a broad spectrum of them in all these different places was often the shortness of them, which is something historians have really looked at a lot. Sometimes these things are conducted in an hour, right? They'll, they'll, they'll pen up the captives in a, in a yard or on the ship. A day, the hour will come when the sail opens. They'll fire off a pistol or shout the sail is open and the buyers come pouring in grab hold of people they, w- they want to purchase and drag them off, literally drag them off. That certainly happens, but that's not the typical sale I found. What is the typical sale will stretch on for maybe three weeks, two, two or three weeks, and the captives will be stuck there in, in port, either in a warehouse, prison, or on the ship, being constantly visited by these buyers who will be, again, like they were in Africa, sifting through them, trying to find the people they want to buy, usually according to their health, their age, and those kind of criteria. And suffering those kind of separations and, and that daily intimate violence of, of, uh, that we see on the African coast as well. So there's actually a lot of similarity between the way the slave trade operates in Africa and the Americas uh, when you look at these sales. And throughout the conversation, you've mentioned the violence, the brutality, the desire for profit and the bottom line. Do we get any sense that these traders felt guilt about what they were doing? No, and that... And that's something that really is striking. I mean, from a modern perspective, we would expect people to be reflective on their business, to be guilty of the things that they've done. And the things they've done are truly, truly awful, as I've alluded to in this conversation, uh, separating you know, family members from each other, sometimes mothers from children, beating people, sexual exploitation of enslaved women on the ships and in the Americas and, and indeed in Africa, killing people by by imprisoning them on these vessels the, the, the merchants know and factor into their calculations of profits that as that people will but will die and when the reports come to them in places like liverpool that they react without any kind of remorse at all they shrug it off as a as a, as a standard business expense so the question then is why why are they so unreflective and why aren't they racked with guilt these aren't people who typically when they live in places like liverpool or even in in some of the places in the americas are violent to their fellow citizens out in the streets. They're often people who are at the pinnacle of society. They're mayors of Liverpool. They're people who sit on the council. They're considered the sort of great and the good of of the city. And the reason I argue is because that sort of mindset of thinking of enslaved people as commodities, of thinking them as goods to be traded, regardless of of the bonds between them, regardless of their humanity... It's a prerequisite of participation in the trade, and it's one that's shared, as I've mentioned before, by the traders in men in Africa, Americas, and and in Britain. Anyone who has remorse, who has guilt, who has questions about whether they should be a slave trader will, will, will not be a slave trader. They'll quit because of the horrors that they witness on a daily basis if they're, if they're operating in the, on the ships or on the coasts or in the islands. Anyone who tries to instigate, invent trading practices that are more humane, that acknowledge the humanity of the enslaved, that reduce, say, the number of people on the sh- that, that are being traded, that take into account the fact that these Africans will often be in family groups, will usually be driven out of business by more ruthless competitors as well. So we see very little evidence of those kind of reforms, actually. I, don't, I very rarely see people pushing for those kind of things. And when they do, they, they, they usually uh, they don't last very long. They disappear very quickly. So it's sort of a, it's a fundamental aspect 
of the mentality of these people, uh, and it's one that's quite startling. Uh, and you see it emerge, especially when abolition comes along in the late 18th century, and suddenly the, mor- mor- the morality of the, of the um, trade is called into practice. The slave traders are startled by this, taken aback by it, and are very defensive about it. They don't say they don't sort of admit their sins, recant. Often, many of them double down and continue in the business in, through abolition, and as I show at the end of the book, make a lot of money by it as well. And I think underpinning that as well is their shared social background, which I said at the beginning of this conversation tends to be quite lowly. In the scheme of things, they're not they're not poor, but neither are they people who are who are, tend to be landed gentry or aristocracy or people who are settled. They tend to be ambitious migrants who want to make something of themselves at enormous cost. And so I, I I argue that they do anything to achieve that, to go from being say the second son of a farmer in rural Lancashire to the upper echelons of society in somewhere like Liverpool. The way to attain that very quickly and many of them do, is through this kind of violence and through this kind of mindset that they'll do anything to get where they want to go. That was Nicholas Radburn. Traders and Men is published by Yale University Press and on sale now. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.